You're listening to audio from Cities Church. You can find more resources and learn about our ministry by visiting cityschurch.com. Well, good morning, Cities Church. We have arrived at Psalm 63. We've gone through a lot of psalms the last few summers. This is our fifth summer in the psalms. And I'm excited for the next few weeks. Um, I just want to pause and acknowledge for a moment. It'd be a little awkward maybe if I didn't. Uh, Most of you in the room know that my wife and I will be relocating to the state of Florida in just a few weeks. Uh, If you didn't know that and you just found that out three seconds ago, I apologize. This is how you're finding out. Um, We do have three more Sundays today, next week, and the week after, but God willing, at the end of June, we'll be relocating to the state of Florida. And... um, It is bittersweet. And uh, today, um, it feels more bitter than sweet because today is the last time I will preach from this pulpit to you as one of your pastors. I guess there's a possibility that could change, but it's highly unlikely, right? (laughs) Today's in all likelihood the last time I will preach to you as one of your pastors this morning. And um, Cities Church, I just want you to know it has been a joy to be a part of this congregation and a joy to be one of your pastors. Uh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. It's been a, it has been a joy. Um, we're going to miss a lot of things about Minnesota. Not winter. Uh, we'll miss a lot of things about Minnesota. Um, But the number one thing we will miss is being a part of this church. To my brother pastors, Pastor Jonathan, um, to Kevin Easterwood, my brother pastors, thank you for letting me uh, share on this team. It has been one of the greatest joys of my life. City Church, we will miss you, and I will pray for you frequently, and I want you to know that I love you. I love this church. I love this church. So, so this morning, I get to look at Psalm 63 in God's incredible providence. My last sermon here will be one of my favorite psalms. This psalm has become very, very dear to me over the last year of my life. And I didn't realize that when I was put on the schedule for this Sunday that this would be this psalm. It's God's kindness and providence. So I have been greatly helped by this psalm many times, and I, I believe you will be as well. I'm not the only one that loves this psalm. In fact, this psalm has a very unique history in the church. Throughout church history, Psalm 63 has been one of the most frequently cited and one of the most frequently sang psalms in church history. In fact, uh, in the second, third, and fourth centuries, this psalm was sang at the beginning of nearly every worship service. For the first two or three hundred years of Christian history, every church service started by singing Psalm 63. So there's good reason to love this psalm. And people have asked, why was this psalm so popular in the early church? The the best answer comes from 
a fourth century pastor theologian, a man by the name of John Chrysostom. John Chrysostom was a famous preacher living in the late 300s, early 400s. And he says this about Psalm 63. He says, the church of the earlier generations believed that no day should pass without the public singing of this psalm because the spirit and soul of the whole book of Psalms is summed up in this psalm. Chrysostom says, he said, the reason why the early church and the church fathers loved this psalm is because they looked at this psalm and said, this, is, this psalm right here is a microcosm of all of the other ones. All of the themes and things that we observe in the psalms, all of the exhortations and motifs we see right here in Psalm 63. And so for good reason, they went back to this psalm over and over and over again. And we'll get a chance to look at it together this morning. So would you pray with me and then we'll dive into the text. Father in heaven, thank you for the time that I've had here at City's Church. Would you bless this church family? Would you use this congregation to show your glory in these twin cities, I pray, for many decades to come? I pray, I pray that this generation of this church would be so committed to your mission, would love you and love one another so well that when we're all dead, that this church will still stand as a truth-telling outpost in these twin cities. God, would you do that? Thank you for the kindness and provision you have shown to City's Church. Your faithfulness has been on display so many times over and over and over again. Thank you, God. I praise you. And now, God, I ask as we look through Psalm 63, would you use your word this morning to shape us, to mold us, to challenge us, to encourage us and inspire us? Would you use your word this morning to mold us to be more like your son? For your glory, I pray. I ask all these things in the matchless name of Jesus. Amen. Well, right off the bat, at the top of Psalm 63, if you look at the superscript, that's the text right above, you'll see it says this, a Psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. David is writing in the wilderness. Now, when you look through the Old Testament, you examine David's life, you see that there are at least two seasons of, of life where he is living in the wilderness. One season early in his life when he's a young man being chased by Saul, afraid for his life for nearly a decade. And another season of life about 40 years later, after he had been king, when his son Absalom has rebelled against him, has led an army to usurp David, to overthrow the kingdom, and to, and to seize power. David is then ousted on the run, and yet again, more than four decades later, finding himself back, on, back in the wilderness. <clears throat> the consensus amongst biblical scholars is that Psalm 63 is written in that second season of wilderness, late in David's life. He is in his 60s. If you want to read about this season of his life, you can read about it in 2 Samuel 15. So David's on the run. He's been king for many years by this point. His son Absalom has launched a rebellion. Absalom has garnered a lot of influence. He's kind of got a lot of people who are angry at David and frustrated with David's sins and bad choices over the years. People were angry with him, ready to be done with David. And Absalom is the comforting ear. It's the tactic that 
erroneous revolutionaries often use. They seem like the compassionate ones. And Absalom leads the revolution, and like all revolutionaries, he is convinced that the current leader must be ousted, and of course, he is the best fit to take the leader's spot. Revolutionaries don't often overthrow the leader and say, oh, someone else should take power. It's almost always self-serving. I can't imagine what David is feeling in this moment. I'm I'm a father. My daughter just turned two years old this week. I can't imagine if my daughter, if my child was the source of my ousting. And I was now on the run in the wilderness because of my kid. I can't imagine the pain that David is experiencing in this moment. The incredible heartache, the heartbreak. And most of Israel has turned on David and now become loyal to Absalom. How would you respond in that moment? How would you respond in that moment? If I'm honest, I'd like to believe that I would respond the way David did, but I know myself and my own sin enough to know that, gosh, I hope I would, but I know I might be bitter. I know know myself well enough to know I'd be tempted to not respond appropriately, which is why Psalm 63 is so helpful because it gives us a model for how to respond when you find yourself in difficult, heartbreaking moments. Here's how David responds. Look at verse one. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. What a response in the midst of being in the wilderness. After experiencing heartbreak, he's probably feeling confusion. God, I already went through this once. 40 years ago with Saul. Why again? Why another season on the run in the wilderness? But he says, my soul thirsts for you. In these sort of moments when life is hard, when we are experiencing these sorts of tragic, heartbreaking moments, when we feel betrayed or confused, when we're tempted to become bitter, crying out to God and telling him that you thirst for him is the best response. David makes it clear, you know what I need right now most? Not to be reconciled to my son, not to be put back on the throne. What I need most right now? I need God. What my soul needs most is to be satisfied in him. He then goes on and begins to tell us in this psalm what has inspired him to find his satisfaction in God. Look at verse 2. He says, so I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Remember, David's in the wilderness. He's not near the tabernacle in Israel. The tabernacle is where the the presence of God is. He's remembering back. He's like, I'm in the wilderness right now, but I remember there was a time where I was near the tabernacle, and I looked upon that. Another English translation renders verse 2 like this. I have seen you in your sanctuary and gazed upon your power and glory. David is in the wilderness saying, I remember the moment when I saw the power of glory of God in display in the sanctuary. I may not physically see it right now. It may be far away. I may not feel it, but I remember there was a moment where I saw his power and glory on display. And when you are in the wilderness, reminding yourself of the previous moments of your life, when you have seen the power of God on display is the right go-to tactic. He's remembering back when he saw God. And then he tells us this is why he will praise God in the, sanctuary, in the wilderness. Look at verse 3. He says this. 
Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. These lips of mine, they're going to praise him. Why? Because I remember looking at his power and glory. And every time I do, I'm reminded of his steadfast love. And his love, it's better than even being alive. Which is really good news for a guy who's on the run in the wilderness, being chased by men who want to execute him. Even if they find me and kill me, it doesn't matter because I got something more valuable than life. I got the steadfast love of God. David here is telling us the reason my lips are going to praise God is because I remember gazing on the power of glory of God. I remember back to the seasons of my life where I can see God's power and glory on display and they remind me of his steadfast love. Therefore, even in the midst of the wilderness, he is worthy of my praise. Sometimes people ask, when I'm in a dry season of life and my spiritual walk is feeling brittle or weak, how do I, how do I stoke that? How do I want God more? Like, like, I want God a certain amount, but I want to want God more. How do I do that? I think David's model here in these early verses of Psalm 63 are extremely helpful and instructive for us. David does not think about his problem. He doesn't think about the current situation he's in. He thinks about the previous moments in his life where God has demonstrated his steadfast love. And so when you find yourself in difficult situations in life, whether they are, you feel like small problems or massive problems, right? When we find ourselves in moments of heartache and heartbreak and frustration, we pause and remind ourselves of the steadfast love of God. We saw this in Hebrews chapter 2 several months ago. The writer of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 2, the way to keep yourself from drifting away, here's what you do. Remember in Hebrews chapter 2, he said, pay more close attention to what you heard about Jesus. The way you keep from drifting away is to lean in more, reminding yourself of the things you already know about the steadfast love of God. Remembering who God is and what he has done will cultivate your desire to stay close to him. David then re he reiterates this in the next few verses. Look at verse 5 and 6 with me. David says, My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. He's like, my soul is going to be satisfied when I remember God. When I'm late at night, sitting on my bed, meditating about who he is and all the things he has done, that's when my soul will be satisfied. And if, you're, if your soul is not satisfied in God, it is because you have forgotten who he is and what he has been for you. So remind yourself. I love the imagery here too. He's, my soul is going to be satisfied like like a great fatty meal. He's like, like, like that moment you get that grade A ribeye steak or that premium double burger with grilled onions and special sauce. Just that satisfaction you feel. When you remember God, that's how your soul feels. When we remember the moments where God's power 
and glory have been on display. Let me give you a, just a few quick practical things that you can do when you find yourself in the wilderness, things you can do. Number one is look back through your life of moments where God has been faithful to you. This is where journaling is actually really helpful. I don't really, I'm not a big journaler. I have like one journal after 20 years because I journal like once every 11 months, one page, you know. <laughs> As we're packing our house to move, I keep finding these journals. I'm like, oh yeah, I'm about a third of the way through this journal. I bought it in 1997. But, uh, <laughs> but it's helpful sometimes to just remind yourself of things, to pause and go, I remember. I remember what it was like. I have a few moments. There are these moments I had in my life that where God spoke to me or God did something where his power and, and love were on display. Stop and remind yourself of those things. Maybe write those down. I've got a, I've got a little zip. I've got a little Ziploc bag. I call, it, I call it my pat yourself on the back bag. Because people in life don't pat you on the back often. And so I just written down things in life where God has done something, and I put it in that little Ziploc bag, and I've got some notes from people in my life, and I save it in that bag. And every now and then, when I'm, when I'm feeling like my heart is in a wilderness, I, I reach through that bag, and I read through it. And I think back to myself, I think to myself, God has been so faithful to me. Even I'm in the wilderness now, he's worthy of my praise. The second thing you ought to do often when you are trying to remind yourself of the power and glory of God is to read your Bible. Oftentimes, when people think back about times where God has been faithful to you. We think about our own personal experiences, but the Bible is filled with hundreds of moments where God has been faithful to people, where his power and glory and steadfast love are on display. And so if you are feeling in the wilderness, go read through moments where God was faithful to someone else and know that God will be faithful to you as well. A third thing I think is important to do is, is to actually read some church history. Now, I'm a church history nerd. My PhD work is in church history, so maybe I'm biased toward this one. But for the last 2,000 years, God has been tremendously faithful to a lot of Christians. And going back and reading through stories of how God has been faithful to people, this is one of the reasons why I love biographies. And I've read a lot of biographies of a lot of Christian leaders and people throughout the centuries because I'm seeing God's faithfulness in them. I'm looking back. It's like, just like David in the, in the wilderness going, I remember the sanctuary. I'm looking back on church history going, I remember what you did for that guy and for that, for that, for that gal and that guy and for those people and that church in this moment. And I see the faithfulness of God on display. The fourth thing to do is when you are trying to remind yourself of the power and glory of God is to lean into relationships with other believers. Pastor Jonathan said this when we started the service, going into membership, adding, adding members. We, we were, the Christian life was never designed to be lived alone. That was, not, that was not the goal. That was not the way it was designed. This is why community groups and life groups and things of that nature are so helpful to us. When you're struggling to remember the power and glory and love of God, it is really great to find one of your brothers or sisters and sit down at a table and ask them, will you just remind me of God's power and glory and love? Will you just like share some stuff with me? Something we do as pastors uh, on Thursday evenings when we have pastors meetings, Pastor Jonathan started this tradition we do. We start every meeting with things we're thankful for. So we just go around the table and just go, what are some things you're thankful for? Things happening in our life, things happening in our church. And it's easy to just kind of forget. And the pastors go around and not everyone shares every time, but a handful of things are shared, shared. And every time I walk away going, God is so faithful to our church. I'm reminded of his power and glory and steadfast love. And I'm inspired to want him even more. 
this week I had a, one of my students at Bethlehem College and Seminary reach out to me to grab lunch. And so we, speaking of burgers, we were over here at My Burger on Thursday and we sat down and we're eating burgers again. He just said, hey, I'm going through a transition in life right now and it's been really difficult. Can you just, can you just maybe give me, some inform- give me some thoughts or wisdom on transitions you've been through in your life? And I'm like, well, I'm, I'm going through a transition right now, actually. It's, it's a great timing. And so I kind of just shared with him some of the experiences I've had in transitions I've been through. And he was incredibly encouraged. He goes, man, thank you so much. So he is leaning into me, asking me, could you remind me of how God has been faithful to you through transitions so that it will encourage me as I go through this transition. And it was very helpful to him. So we want to remind ourselves of our past, read the Bible, church history, and lean into our relationships. And as we do that, we will remind each other of the steadfast love of God. Whenever you find yourself in difficult situations, remind yourself that God is steadfast in his love toward you. That, that's the overarching theme we see from David in the first eight verses of Psalm 63. David is making the point that he is delighting in God, and that is the thing that is strengthening him while he goes through the wilderness. And the same is true for you. If you delight in God, that will strengthen you as you face difficulties in this life. And life is hard. We all face a lot of difficult moments. So the more we delight in God, the more we are strengthened through that. And the more we delight in God, the more likely we are to live a glorifying lifestyle unto God. Pastor John Piper, back in the 1980s, coined a term we call Christian hedonism, which at first, if you've never heard that term, may sound a little odd. The hedonist is someone who lives for their own pleasure. Their goal of life is their own pleasure and nothing else. That's a bad way to live. The Christian hedonist is, says the goal of my life is to live finding my pleasure in God above all things because we know that the more I'm satisfied in him, the more likely I am to live a lifestyle that brings glory and honor to God. The more satisfied I am in God, the less likely am I to go try to find satisfaction in sinful things or idolatrous things. John Piper is famous for a statement many of you are familiar with, no doubt. God is most glorified in me when I am most satisfied in him. And David, in essence, is showing us he believes that. In this wilderness, you know how I stick with God? By finding my satisfaction in him, by allowing my soul to feast on him, to thirst for him and allow him to satisfy me. That's the first eight verses of the psalm. Then in verse 9, David takes a little bit of a turn. There's a little bit of a shift in the psalm. And David begins to contrast himself versus the men that are chasing him, the men who are seeking to attack him. Look at at verse 9. He says this, But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth, and they shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. Throughout this psalm, David has been wanting us to know that his satisfaction is in God. But now he's pointing out these men who are finding their satisfaction in something else. These men, they're looking to seize power. They're not satisfied in God. They will be satisfied, they think, when they seize control of the kingdom. So there's a, there's a, a contrast between David and Absalom. Between David and, 
Absalom's men. David is satisfied in God. Absalom thinks he will be satisfied when he is king of Israel. But David knows that's not going to go well for Absalom. He says, they're going to go down to the depths of the earth. Then he says, they're going to be portion for jackals. They're going to be meals for jackals. And David's like, I'm not going to do what those guys do because I don't want to end up as a jackal happy meal. He's contrasting himself with these guys. If you trust in God, find your satisfaction in God, you will be strengthened. And even if you die, you've got something better than life, the steadfast love of God. But if you don't find your satisfaction in God, you find your satisfaction in other things, it will not go well for you. You will end up as meals for jackals, he says. He continues the contrast in verse 11. He says this, but the king shall rejoice in God. Rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. David here is first referring to himself. He's the king. And he declares the king is going to rejoice in God. These other men, they rejoice in other things. But the king, me, David, the king will rejoice in God. That's what he's saying here. Those guys, they delight in power. But this king will delight in God. Rejoice in God. It's interesting to note, though, David is in the wilderness. David is not on the throne. He's functionally no longer the king right now. I mean, he, he, he comes back to the throne briefly. There's another rebellion. Then there's a power struggle between his sons. And after several years, eventually Solomon ends up on the throne. So functionally, David's reign is kind of over. <clears throat> but he still refers to himself as the king. And he still intends to behave like a good king. David knows that a good king delights in God and does not do what other people do when they are delighting in other things. And so David's like, they do that, but here's what I'm going to do. I was called to be a good king, and I'm going to do what a good king does. A good king delights in God. David understood his calling to be a good king. And even if he was no longer functionally the king, he does not behave in a way that would be undermining of his calling to be a king. He's like, I'm going to do what a good king does, whether I'm actually the king or not. Can you imagine one of David's compadres comes up, catches up with him in the wilderness and says to him, David, Absalom is sinning. He's destroying the whole city. He's destroying the country. He's destroying the kingdom. He's causing so many problems. This is going to devastate the people of God. David, do something about this. I think David might respond by saying, but in order for me to do that, I'm gonna to to, to have to pull some of the dirty tricks that he's pulling. His friend might say to him, yeah, you're gonna to have to fight fire with fire to keep the, keep the kingdom together. And David goes, fire with fire? His friend says, yeah. David says, nah, I'm not gonna do that. People who do that, they end up as meals for jackals. But David, he might kill you. That's okay, I've got, I've got something better than life. I got the steadfast love of God. So David, what are you gonna do? Me? I'm gonna do what a good king does. I'm gonna delight in God. One Old Testament commentator 
a man named Derek Kidner put it this way. David refused to behave in a manner unbecoming of a king, even when he was no longer the king. I think there's an important lesson for us to learn is to ensure that our behavior is always in line with our calling. We are called to be in the family of God. We're called to be ambassadors for Christ. Therefore, our behavior must always be appropriate for that calling. It must be in line with that calling. The Apostle Paul says this in Ephesians chapter 4. He says, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. There are certain things in life that are unbecoming of a Christian. Do not do those things. In our crazy society right now, in our crazy political, toxic political environment, it is really easy to see people we disagree with that are doing evil things or promoting evil, using certain tactics to say, well, we got to fight fire with fire. We got to do what they do. Otherwise, we can't beat them. I think David would say, nah, don't do that. I want to make it very clear. I'm all for fighting for righteous things, right? Fighting for the truth, fighting to protect the unborn, fighting to protect children from uh, genital mutilation. These are good things to fight against. Fighting to ensure that government officials are just in their dealings. Fighting to eradicate poverty. These are all good fights. They're all worthy of our efforts. All of them. But Christians, we must be careful that in our fighting, we do not stoop to the level of those doing evil, manipulative things. And if someone says, well, then we'll lose. Fine, we'll lose. They'll kill us. Fine, they'll kill us. You know why? Because I got something better than life. I got the steadfast love of God. So I refuse to do what him. David absolutely will kill you. Better he kill me than I become like him. We don't go down those roads. In our fighting against evil things and for righteous things, we must be careful to never become, behave in a manner that is unbecoming of a Christian. We must continually delight in God and delight in living in His ways in accordance with what He has called us to do in every arena of life. Side note, I think this also maybe applies to some like individual callings. Give example, I know that there are young men in the room who feel called to vocational ministry. You feel like God's calling you to be a pastor. That's awesome. That's a good thing. I'm looking at some of the dudes I know. It's a good thing to aspire to be a pastor, an overseer. It's a good thing. Don't wait till you're a pastor to start behaving like one. Don't wait till you're a seminary graduate to start behaving like one. Behave now in accordance with your calling. If you're single and you desire to be married, that's a good thing. If you're a single man, don't wait till you're a husband to start behaving like a good husband. If there's things you would not do as a husband, don't do them as a single man. If you're a single woman who wants to be a wife one day and a mother, don't do the things that a bad wife or a bad mother would do while you're a single woman. Behave now in accordance with the calling that God has for you. And I think we could probably apply this to so many arenas of our lives. David models for us, and Paul reiterates this in the New Testament, there is a certain calling upon us. We are to behave in accordance with that, to never behave in a manner that is unbecoming of the calling that we have received. And the way David did this, and the way we can do this, is by continually finding our satisfaction in God 
above all else. Because when we are most satisfied in him, he will be most glorified in us and through us. David modeled this for us many times in his life for us. But as we all know, when we know the life of David, David wasn't always a good king. He didn't always behave in a manner of the calling that he had received. There were moments of great sin in David's life. And in Psalm 63, he's modeling for this well, for this well but he hasn't always modeled this well for us. But there's another king. There's a better king who has modeled this for us perfectly. A king who always behaves like a good king because he is a good king. It's King Jesus who delights in his father. King Jesus came to serve people and they turned on him. They refused to acknowledge his authority. They refused to submit to his ways. They mocked him, beat him, put him on a sham trial, and eventually they crucified him. And yet Jesus still behaved like a good king all the days of his life. Jesus delighted in God. And that's how we remain strong. When you delight in God, it strengthens you and inspires you to get through the wilderness. Jesus did it for us as a model, and he made it possible. And the writer of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews chapter 12 to actually look to Jesus. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, he says, Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. Jesus knew through this cross and on the backside of this cross, there's going to be incredible joy to be had for me, my father, and for all the people that God is calling them to himself. For you. So Jesus is looking at the joy that he is going to make available to you. And he says, I see that target. I see their joy as my bullseye. And that will be the thing I aim for. And I will endure this cross so that they can experience my father's joy. It was looking ahead at the joy that was to come that strengthened and inspired Jesus to endure the cross. And the writer of Hebrews is telling us that's a model for us. It's an example for us. There's a joy that's been set for, before you, City's Church. And by looking at that joy, it will strengthen you and inspire you to go through your wilderness. Just as King Jesus delighted in God, we too ought to delight in God. But the delighting in God is only made possible because of Jesus. In fact, if there's no Jesus and no cross, there's no ability for us to delight in God because there's only wrath and justice for our sin available to us. There is no delighting in God. There's no joy to be had. There's nothing but sorrow and lament. But because of Jesus, we can delight in God. We know that there is a joy to come. We, have, we can have joy in Christ today, and we know that there is a grander, greater future joy, a future grace that we are working towards, that we are striving towards, only made possible because of the work of Christ on our behalf. There was a joy that was set before Jesus. It inspired and strengthened him. 
And Cities Church, right now, there is a joy set before you. Look to that joy, the joy you can have in God that will strengthen and inspire you. The joy of knowing that you will be able to enjoy God forever. Cities Church, may we delight in God the way Jesus did, and that will give us strength. The last verse I'll read this morning is verse 8, Psalm 63, verse 8. David says this. You can look at that verse with me. David says, my soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. As our souls cling to King Jesus, he will uphold us. As we think about his power and glory and steadfast love, he will strengthen us. Cities Church, my final exhortation to you as one of your pastors this morning is to remember God. Remember who he is. Remember who he has been to you. Reflect often on his power and glory and his love for you. Delight in him. Cling to him. As you do that, he will uphold you with his right hand. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, thank you again for your kindness and faithfulness to our church. Thank you for allowing me to be a part of this church for this season of my life. Thank you, King Jesus, for enduring the cross. Thank you that for the joy set before you, you endured, and that now we can follow your model. You made it possible for us to come to God, and you gave us the model for how to do it. We look to you. We delight in God, and we know that through that, you will strengthen us, you will inspire us, you will uphold us. God, would you help us remember and reflect upon you? Help us to gaze upon your glory. Help us to remember that your steadfast love is better than life. May that inspire us to worship you. May our souls feast on you, I pray. May we thirst for you. And God, would you satisfy us? Would you satisfy us more than any, any vice or anything of this world? Would you satisfy us? And as we cling to you, oh God, would you uphold us with your mighty hand? I pray that in Christ's name. Amen. Well, now, as we do every Sunday, we come to this table. In just a moment, the pastors are going to come. They're going to serve you first the bread and then the wine. And this meal is open to everyone who's a follower of Jesus. If you are here and you love Jesus, if you have put your trust in him, if you would say, I delight in him, then please feel free to share in this meal with us this morning. But if you are here this morning and you are not a believer in Jesus, if you are someone who would say, I do not delight in him, I'm glad you're here. But please, I encourage you, let the bread and the wine pass. But don't let the moment pass. In this moment, consider Jesus. Think about Jesus. Put your faith in Jesus. May today be the day you choose to delight in him. If you have any questions about what that means, I'll be up here after the service. I'd love to talk to you about what it means to put your faith and trust in Jesus. For everyone else, will participate in this meal. And we will remember who Jesus is and what he has done for us. What Christ has done. We'll pass the bread first. It's gluten-free. Please hold it and we'll take it together. His body is a true bread. Let us serve you.